My name's Adam Knuckles. I serve as the youth pastor here with our church. So good morning. Privileged to be able to preach God's word this morning. Do you feel it's getting harder these days to, to be a believer? And I say it like this. Do you feel like there's more pressure on the church, more pressure on those of us that want to walk in obedience to our King, live out our faith, talk about our faith? Do we feel like, is there more overt opposition to that? Are we scrutinized more, avoided maybe when people hear about what we believe or who we are? Do they avoid us? Maybe even we've had that Someone confront us to our face? Do we see things in our society? Maybe it's on uh, media outlets about some form of, of hatred, like strong opposition to believers. Well, that, that could be the case. Maybe you identified with that and, and we would say, well, yes, maybe it is harder now. I feel in my lifetime, maybe it is the hardest it's been in my lifetime in terms of just living for Jesus and facing some form of opposition. So the temptation can be when opposition comes, when pressure comes to not be overt with our faith or to not follow God as obediently as we know we should, the temptation can be to compromise, to compromise our beliefs and that can arise. Those temptations can come more and more as the pressure mounts. So we're going to look at this this morning when we open up an Old Testament book. We're going to look at the book of Ezra. And we're going to see, I hope, as an encouragement to see like th this is nothing new. This is nothing new for God's people to be confronted with or to face opposition. So we're going to look at the book of Ezra. We're going to see an example we're going to see an example of uncompromising trust in God. So we'll use that language. I think it is the issue at hand when we look at Ezra is this issue of compromise or, or not compromising, being uncompromising. So just to define our term, to define compromise, maybe a meeting in the middle. There's a differing view, there's a disagreement, two sides, and there'll be concessions made by both parties to arrive at a path forward, meet in the middle, arrive at some sort of workable agreement. So the idea of compromise, it can be inconsequential. It can be a relatively benign issue in our lives. I think about maybe growing up with an older brother or having friends and playing shotgun. Who gets to ride in the front seat, passenger seat? We can compromise. Okay, you ride shotgun on the way and I'll ride on the way back. That's inconsequential. Maybe it's where you want to, deciding with a group or with your family where you're going to eat. Are you going to go to Red Robin or go to Chewy's? Now, I would say always go to Chewy's. Don't compromise on that. That's one that's too serious, but it's inconsequential. It can be uh, positive to compromise. I know Lacey and I, my wife, before we got married, we were counseled, but to say, okay, what are you going to do with holidays like Thanksgiving, Christmas? Whose family are you going to be with and, and see during those times? So we had the compromise of, okay, one family per holiday and we switch it. And now our siblings and our parents know, and it's worked relatively great and no big arguments about that in, in our marriage. But compromise can also be a dangerous thing, it can be a very consequential thing, and it can be harmful 
We think politically, maybe there's compromises made that end up with bad legislation, harmful legislation being passed. It can be this com uh, compromise made politically that can, can be a negative. But how about spiritually? That's where we'll camp out. Compromising spiritually of the utmost importance and seriousness, compromising spiritually can lead to two things that I think we'll see. It's going to come out of our text today. Compromising spiritually can lead to syncretism and sentimentalism. So we will get into those terms and those issues and, and figure out how does the text reveal those things. So we'll unpack that soon. But both of these, syncretism, sentimentalism, that we'll see if not avoided, if not avoided for an individual, if not avoided by a group of people, then the individual, the group of people will miss the gospel. If there's compromising spiritually to the point of sentimentalism, syncretism, marking our lives individually or as a group, we miss the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So of the utmost consequence, serious, very important issue that we'll see coming out of the text today. So you can look in Ezra 4. Ezra, if you haven't been there in a while, it's about halfway through the Old Testament. Find First and Second Chronicles and then you'll come to Ezra. As we dive into the Old Testament, the Old Testament is God's word. Completely authoritative, supremely and perfectly true, and we can know God better because of the Old Testament. We know God, we see examples like we'll see today. There are some, some good examples that we can see from especially these narrative passages that help us to just know what to do and what not to do to navigate life in a way that's pleasing to God. There's a purpose for the examples, but also... And, and most importantly, the Old Testament helps us, helps us see our need for a Savior. We'll see that in our text today. There are types of Christ in the Old Testament with different historical figures. There are all certain things like that symbolize Christ, yes. But then we look and see the thrust of the Old Testament shows our need for a Savior that connection to Jesus, and we'll see what our text does or how our text does that this morning. So compromise is the issue that God's people are confronted with as we get into the book of Ezra. So just a little background, old, oldest manuscripts or handwritten copies of the Old Testament include Ezra, Nehemiah um, as one book. It's just been kind of the book I've been studying a lot this summer and most of the commentaries and study resources, you'll see Ezra and Nehemiah are together. Like, like many Old Testament books, anonymous in that it doesn't name the author, but we know from Jewish tradition and the scholars say and uh, that the author is Ezra and he is described in the book itself as a skillful scribe. So we have no reason to believe that Ezra is not the author. And it reached its final form of the book. We can see datable events in the book that give us a date for the completion around 400 BC. If that kind of sets the historical stage for us. So the key themes in the book of Ezra are returning and rebuilding. The key themes in Ezra running throughout returning and rebuilding. So in the 6th century, so what is the return? What's the rebuild? In the 6th century BC, the southern kingdom of God's people, they're exiled to Babylon. 
The Babylonians come in, conquer, drive them out of their land, take them captive and exile them. And then the prophet Jeremiah, he had foretold that, first of all, this exile, this conquering would happen if the people would not repent. But he foretold they'd be exiled for 70 years. And at the end of 70 years, the Lord would send another uh, force of judgment to punish the Babylonians for their wickedness. And God, in fact, used the Persians. The Persians under Cyrus as the ruler to conquer the Babylonians. And they come in and establish a vast empire spreading throughout the Mediterranean and Middle East. And that's where we find the people of God under Persian rule and the agenda for the book, the agenda for the people in terms of returning and rebuilding. So the city, the people, the temple had been laid waste. The people had been dispersed. There's no temple. The city walls have been torn down. And now the Persians come into to rule. And King Cyrus says that the God of heaven has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. This is the Persian King Cyrus. So he has in mind rebuilding the actual temple. And this occurs. He sends the exiles back. So the first wave of exiles go back and they begin rebuilding the temple. So that is a little bit of the setting we find ourselves when we get to Ezra chapter four, and we're going to read verses one through five. If you look along with me, Ezra four. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of father's houses and said to them, let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses and Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Verse 4, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Pray once again with me. God, thank you for your word, its integrity, its clarity, its truth, its power. Help us clearly understand it today. Pray that I can clearly communicate it even now. And we can clearly apply it to our lives to honor and glorify you every day. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have some characters here in the passage that we want to maybe explain who they are. So Ezra, the author of this book, he's a scribe and a priest. He's sent with religious and political powers by the Persian king Artaxerxes. And he leads a group of the Jewish exiles from Babylon back to Jerusalem. That's Ezra, the author. Zerubbabel, you heard his name in there multiple times. He's a descendant of David. Born in Babylon under captivity during the exile. And he travels back to Judah after King Cyrus II allowed the captives, the Judean captives, to return to their homeland and rebuild this temple. And Haggai, the prophet, he identifies Zerubbabel as the governor of Judah after the exile. So he's a leader. He's a governing leader for the returning people. And then if you notice there in verse 1, the adversaries. Who are these people? There are inhabitants. There are people that are in the land after the people of God have been driven out. And then there's inhabitants that, that have been sent in. They come in and they're inhabiting the land. It's not vacant. It's not empty. So who are these adversaries? So 
descendants of conquered people under Assyria. Descendants of these conquered people conquered people settled there by the Assyrians so they knew about Judah's God they knew about worship of the worship of Judah's God but they worshiped other gods and they're identified as adversaries they're hostile toward God and uh, God's people and they're enemies of God is how they're identified these other people that had been settled there so our text in the the upfront reading just that first reading we could see okay they don't receive the help. They respond and say, you're not going to help us build this temple. So God's people uncompromising in that instance, in the face of opposition, they were able to discern adversarial or deceitful intent from these people because they knew God's honor, God's temple, worshiping God is, uh, and their obedience, that's more important than appeasing others or pleasing people or getting help, it probably would have been great to have the help, the help that they knew, pleasing God, honoring God. That is the most important thing. So thinking about that uncompromising example, that uncompromising look, the question can be for us, does this picture our lives as believers? Maybe we can unpack that. Does this represent the contemporary church in the world, in America? In Virginia, does it look like the church is this uncompromising, standing true, standing um, for truth in the face of opposition? Do we individually as believers, as the church, do we fear God or do we fear man? Another way to say, it, is God more important to us than what people think of us? Fearing God or fearing men? Is God more important to us? So my proposition, we must stand firm. Whatever the opposition is, stand firm in our faith in the face of whatever opposition to honor God. So we want to trace this example, this text through, see what it reveals, and then we'll get to the end and we'll see. The question is going to be, well, why? Why would we be motivated to honor God? Why would we want to be uncompromising? That, that can be difficult. Well, we'll talk about the why, and then also we'll see how. How can we in this day and age? But it comes back to the question, are we making? Are we making compromises? Can we discern the compromises that we're making maybe in our lives that, that the enemy, that the enemy can use potentially or is using to lead us away from Christ? To lead others away from Christ. Again, the stakes are high. And this question is vitally important. So going back to our passage in verse 1. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. They heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord. The God of Israel. They're going to approach Zerubbabel and the heads. And say let us build with you. So we don't know from that reading necessarily the direct intention. But they see the people returning to this land that they already inhabit. And maybe the reputation of what the people of God were or have been in the past, what the temple was, maybe precedes them returning. And they say, let us build with you. We worship your God as you do, is what the people say. We've been sacrificing to him. So these mixed people, now these kind of Assyrian conquered descendants and intermarried peoples, in, from the northern kingdom, they're intermarried and they are the forefathers, the predecessors to the New Testament Sumerians. 
if that gives us uh, you know, any information. So the New Testament Sumerians were descendants of these people. And they made this claim of worshiping the God of Israel. So some scholars, if you read certain commentaries on this, they assume, they assume this motivation for offering the help was to infiltrate, deceive, disparage, derail the building project up front. That was their motivation. And I think we'll see in the quick response that that was truly, their true colors are shown and that was their intention. But the truth about their worship of Yahweh, their worship of God is interesting that they make that statement. So how do we know that they're really not of God's people, that they're not true worshipers, that it's illegitimate? Well, God's word interprets God's word. We can go back to 2 Kings chapter 17, and it talks about these people. It talks about these people and their worship of the God of Israel. 2 Kings 17, looking at verse 33. Listen, this is describing these inhabitants of the land. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day, they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. And then in verse 41, so these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise and their children's children as their fathers did. So they do to this day. So how can they fear God, worship God while worshiping other gods? Carved images. That's in direct defiance to the commands of the God of Israel. How can this be? They practice syncretism. Maybe at best, but they practice syncretism, this combining of beliefs and practices, compromising of beliefs, meeting in the middle to say, I'm going to take a little bit from this type of worship or this God, and then I'm going to go and I'll also worship this God. It is syncretism, combining of different practices and beliefs. So it's as if the people are saying, let me cover all my bases. I'll, I'll appease this God. I'll appease this God. We don't want to get conquered anymore. Let's just see. Let's just throw it all together and see what works and see if we can be happy. Maybe not get conquered anymore. Continue on. I've got to cover my bases because ultimately at the end of it, I'm unsure. I'm unsure if the God of Israel is true. I'm unsure if he's powerful enough to really help me in the way I want to be helped. It is saying, I trust myself, my own judgment, and I'm just going to cover my bases. Syncretism, combining these beliefs. Is this unique to this historical people, to this historical setting? For this obviously combining of beliefs where they can say, yeah, we worship your God. And then also other gods. It is, uh, is not unique. The American Worldview Inventory of 2021 conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University in February 2021. So we're going to assume a scientific study, assume it's at least a window, a perspective into contemporary beliefs by people. doesn't tell us everything, but let's just assume that this could be reality for some. So this study, it goes across all generations, boomers, builders, Gen Xers, millennials, and it finds over half of the respondents respond that they are a Christian, that they, that they follow Christianity. 
And of those half of the respondents who said they were Christians, listen to some of the other things that they responded that they believe. So this is, in this survey, a sample size of people that identified from all these different age groups and generations that, yes, we are Christians. And then listen, I'll just read a brief list of beliefs that they also said they agreed with. Horoscopes provide useful guidance. Getting even with those who offend or harm you is defensible. God's not involved in people's lives. Allowing people to own property facilitates economic injustice. Karma is a viable life principle. The Bible's ambiguous in what it teaches about abortion. Human beings have developed over a long period of time from less advanced life forms to our current condition. These are people that say they're Christians worshiping our God, but they also believe these things. This temptation to pick and choose beliefs and worldviews based on I guess what, whatever feels good or sounds right, it's always been there. It's always been here and it always will be this temptation. So what do we do? What do we do as Christians to avoid being syncretists, to avoid missing the gospel? We have to vet these ideas. We have to compare them to what God's word says. And his word's always absolutely true and authoritative. He cannot have his word be an authority among many in our lives. He is the sole authority. How do we know what he says? Because he put it in 66 books. So if we can do that, there can be an avoidance of syncretism. I would say there can be avoidance of materialism. An avoidance of individualism. All these isms have no place in our theology. No place in how we think rightly about God. How we th our thoughts about God have to be informed and shaped by God's word without compromise. We either worship the God of the Bible or it's a God of our own choosing. And a creation of our imagination. Fearing God over fearing men. Syncretism can result from compromising spiritually and you miss the gospel because Jesus is not Lord if you think any of those list of things are true. Now there's a season and a time for confusion, but God's means of grace is applying his word. So once you're confronted with the truth, you either submit or you have no place in him. That's what it is to say Jesus is master and Lord. Verse three, but Zerubbabel, but Zerubbabel, Jeshua. So Zerubbabel, the governing leader of the people, Jeshua, the religious leader, and the rest of the father's houses, they said, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. So the response by the leaders of the people of God, it's decisive, it's immediate. The reasons for, they don't want to be sidetracked by this offer for help, this offer of help. They knew the temple that they were going to be rebuilding was for the Lord, the God of Israel. And he was not the God that these people worshipped legitimately at all. So the returnees, they apparently think uh, it's more important to please God than to please their neighbors. That's what they apparently thought in this instance. So the question can come back to us. Do we trust in God and do what he says? Or we, do we do what makes sense in the eyes of the world? Do we trust in God and do what he says? So what we are not rebuilding a temple, 
We won't do that. We're not going to face opposition for that. But I know money can get tight. I know classes can get hard. Can be difficult to follow down a certain career path or achieve the kind of success that would make one happy or comfortable. That can get really hard. It can get hard to do what was going to make mom and dad proud. That can get difficult. Among a myriad of other difficulties we will face. Do we compromise our principles, our integrity? Or do we offend people who want to help us, but their help involves compromising truth? Whose help is more valuable, man's or God's? It is cut and dry. Whose help is more important, more valuable, man's or God's? Dr. Jim Hamilton, his commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah has helped me tremendously in just interpreting this passage. He gives this example. Imagine a battalion fighting to plant their flag on the hilltop. If they betray everything the flag stands for in the fight to the top of the hill, what had they accomplished when they plant the flag? If they adopt all the practices of their enemies in their desperation to win the battle, have they defeated their enemies? It's a good question. This is what is at stake in Ezra 4. If Israel allows these adversaries to build the temple, they might as well not build it at all. So uncompromising. Now, an uncompromising person doesn't always get equated as a loving person. Yes? You don't always think, okay, man, this, this brother, this guy's uncompromising and he's super loving. Sometimes those can be at odds. And granted, they can be. But uncompromising, living without compromise, it can be offensive. It can be offensive, but it shouldn't be intentionally harsh or abrasive. We're not saying... Shout people down. We're not saying to live uncompromising is to make everyone mad because you're just abrasive and offensive. Not at all. That's not the posture we take. But the inhabitants of the land, in this example, in the adversaries of God's people, they obviously received the response as an offense. They obviously received the response from Zerubbabel and the others as an offense because they, look at verse 4, they discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid to build, bribed counselors. They receive the response of the people living uncompromisingly. They receive it as an offense. But were the people of God, were, was Zerubbabel and the other leaders, were they not being loving? Were they not being honest about the people, the adversaries' deceptive motives? And at best, were they not being honest about their confusion about what it is to truly worship the one true God? Is that not love to confront them? They could have changed their ways when confronted with, you have no place in us. So what is the alternative to being lovingly honest? What is the alternative to speaking the truth in love? It's sentimentalism. It's sentimentalism, which is an epidemic in our culture today. And from what I've heard in some churches, sentimentalism, a loving viewer attitude that is disconnected from truth. So if anyone ever saw me play golf and said, Adam, you're really good at golf. That person doesn't love me because they're not being honest with me. They're wanting me to feel good and they're wanting me maybe to feel good about them. That's a nice sentiment, but it's not based on truth. 
Now, that's a, a silly example. I, I'm terrible at golf. But there are serious consequences for being sentimental and not loving. Yes, within the church, but then yes, outside of the church. Absolutely. If we compromise and we tell others things that are not true just so they feel good or so that they will like us, we are fearing men and not God. People pleasing, people pleasing, which can be so serious that we affirm and celebrate overt rebellion against our king. We celebrate and affirm unrepentant sin just so people won't feel bad or that they will like us temporarily. I can't think of anything more unloving. I can't think of anything more hateful than to be sentimental instead of loving and truth, truth, truthful, honest towards people. How do we avoid sentimentalism? So with syncretism, how do we avoid combining our beliefs with alternate other worldviews that are not based on God's word? Will we test the worldview issues that come into our purview, we test them against what God's word says. We got to know God's word. Well, how do we avoid sentimentalism? Being just a sentimental person. Well, Paul gives us instruction in Ephesians 4. Paul gives us instructions, Ephesians 4.15. He says, rather speaking the truth in love. There's the familiar phrase, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So let's talk about what this verse does not say. Speaking the truth in love, we should speak to one another and we should speak to others outside the church with, with calmness and in a posture of friendship. But the context of this verse reveals to love one another in the church. This is a letter and instruction to the church of Jesus Christ. We talk about God's word, which reveals his ways. We teach, we preach the Bible so that we can know God and become more like Christ. That's why the church, that's why this gathering occurs. That's why in our life groups, and all our small groups, small groups, the basis is going to be the Bible. We speak the truth in love because the only thing loving is God's word that tells us who we are and who we can be through Christ. And then how we navigate this life in a way that's pleasing to him. Speaking the truth in love is speaking God's truth. Various ways, different settings. So the inhabitants, again, their response, they receive it as an offense. They're offended. They're going to frustrate. They're going to bribe. They're going to discourage. So they showed their true colors. They could have done things. They could have done things to be God's people. They could have been welcomed in to help. They could have been true worshipers and they could have helped rebuild the temple. But their offer back in verse two, it was false. It's a false offer. They didn't want to help. They didn't fear God. Why did they offer? They wanted control and influence. They see a people coming in to inhabit their land and they're saying, we're going to lose our stake. We're going to lose our power. We're going to lose control of this. We want to keep it. They made a false offer. Their motivation and interest was to advance themselves. So the enemies of God's people deserve nothing. They don't deserve the control. They don't deserve the influence. But in the same turn, God's people deserve nothing. God's people deserve nothing, but God was gracious to them to allow them to serve him and to strive for obedience. 
He is gracious to them. Their only qualification is by God's grace. They're not compromising in their belief and their trust in him in this instance. Their only qualification is they fear him above man. They just say, we need you, God. Your help is is the best. They needed him. Fearing him above man. And we, we need him. We have to understand when we talk about, well, what would be the motivation to be uncompromising? How would we do that? We have to see that we need him. And the only thing that makes us his, his people, is faith in Jesus Christ. The one who gave his life to make a way for peace with God. The substitute. Our sin separates us from God because he's perfectly holy. We have to have a substitute. We have to have a substitute to pay the penalty for our sin. So Jesus had to die. There are some syncretic view today that would claim Christ but say he shouldn't have died. It was cosmic child abuse. Jesus had to die. In our place for our sin, perfect blood had to be shed. Or else God would not be holy and just. How could he let sinful, created beings with unrepentant, uncovered sin in his presence? If he were to do that, he'd be unholy. He'd be unjust. And he wouldn't be worthy of worship. Dishonor, rebellion, turning from truth, compromising God's truth must be punished. I've compromised. My sin is worth punishing. But praise God, Jesus took my place. The temple being, be, being rebuilt is a big deal. The temple being rebuilt in this historical instance is a big deal. It's where the presence of God dwelled. So we see the big picture. So don't just take away what a, what a great example of uncompromising obedience. We have to get to the end of the story. So just real quick, at the end of this historical account, you get to the end of Nehemiah in chapter 13. And the ongoing problems with the community start to return and reoccur. So this concept of the house of God, the rebuilt temple, the city, the reformation of the community, it's unraveling already by the time you get to this, this record. So there's this question and there's this look to the future, the plot of the Bible, creation, fall, Genesis one through three. And then we have this huge swath of the Bible that is about God's redemption. God's redemption. This is a picture of God's redemption. He's wanting them to look to the future, to remember a promise that will be fulfilled. So like we said at the beginning, the Old Testament shows us our need for a savior. And so we get to the end and we start to see the realization of this redemption and what the rebuilding a place for the presence of God to dwell in and for his people to be reformed, how it will be lasting. How is it going to be lasting? Because it doesn't last with Ezra and Nehemiah. So it points to this future, the promise of God dwelling with his people. One scholar says this, the open question is answered and that look to the future is found in Christ. The dwelling place of God is realized in Christ. So listen as the apostle Peter writes about this holy, perfect temple being built. First Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. In the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. He's talking about the church, people, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of all that the temple and the people, the reforming of the communion was to be, is fulfilled and found in Christ. So do we 
does the church today, you know, around the world, globally, does it look like a holy people? Does it always look like a holy people, a holy city, a holy temple? As God, I would say, no, it doesn't always look like that. But as God's people should have hoped for the Messiah's coming in centuries past, so we, God's people, saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone, we look and hope for the future when the holy people, the city, and the temple will be realized. And we come to that creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Renewal, the future realized hope comes at the end. Revelation 21, we'll end here. And I heard a loud, this is uh, Revelation 21, verse 3. Think about it in terms of the temple, the city, and the people. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And then in verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It's going to be perfect, holy, restoration, renewal. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. Did you catch that? I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will, be the, nation, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the future hope. But only, that's the future realization of the rebuilding and restoration, the renewal, but only for those who have trusted in Jesus alone for forgiveness and they follow him as Lord. Consider just a, a few questions as we close. Have you been compromising in your trust in Christ? Compromising in speech, deed, thought for too long? Is your worldview Syncretism. Is it a combination of other religious beliefs with no testing on what God's word says? Is your love far too often sentimental and attitude divorced from truth? Are we more concerned with people's response to us than pleasing God? Will they like us? There are only two types of people in the world. There's only two types of people sitting here right now. And there's only two types of people that have ever existed in the history of the world. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and those who are enemies of God and His people. There's no compromise there and God will not compromise at judgment. Your names are in the Lamb's Book of Life or you're hostile. You're enemy to God. But He is wonderful and He says, come to me. And Jesus' blood covers the sins of all those who place their faith and trust in him is your name written in the Lamb's book of life today? There's a question, there's a look to the future, and faith alone in Jesus Christ as Lord is the answer and the only hope.